to the end of this series because we're coming to the end of Elisha's life. Uh, this section from 2 Kings 2 to 2 Kings 13 primarily is about Elisha and primarily about some of the amazing things that he does in his ministry that has the intent of teaching us about the faith that God wants and how to build up that faith. And we've seen some unusual scenes with Elisha. Uh, we've seen him healing waters, healing stew. We've seen floating axe heads. We've seen uh, oil that doesn't run out. We've seen healing leprosy. We've seen raising sons from the dead. We've seen all kinds of things. But I submit to you, you haven't seen anything yet. Because in chapter 13, quite an amazing miracle takes place through Elisha, and it symbolizes an awful lot about what God is doing for his people. And in this final picture, this, this amazing miracle, it really is going to show the amazing power of God that is available to us. And so that's what we're going to look at in 2 Kings chapter 13. As, as we look at this final section of, of Elisha's life in 2 Kings 13, uh, we're noting that we continue to have a focus now on the northern nation. We were given this uh, side point for a moment that we had to have Jehu run around and deal with Ahab's house and kill everybody in Israel, essentially, that were rulers and leaders and Ahab's sons and all of that. And chapter 13 brings us back now to the kingship that is happening in the nation uh, uh, of Israel. And we have then Jehoahaz, he's on the throne. And, and I think it is interesting to note that basically the same old story takes place that in verse 2, he does what is evil in the sight of the Lord and following the sins of Jeroboam, continuing the worship of the golden calves. Essentially, uh, the more things change in Israel, the more they stay the same. You can take out Ahab's house and you can take out the sons and all of that and judgment comes upon Israel and still at the end of the day, uh, nothing is changing. And verse 3 describes what God had promised was going to happen because Jehoahaz continues these sins. God is going to use Hazael, the king of Syria, to mount a series of attacks and cause all kinds of significant issues for Israel. You might remember in 2 Kings chapter 8 and verse 12, Elisha prophesied what Hazael would do before Hazael was king, telling him tomorrow you're going to kill your uh, master, and then described how Hazael was going to set Israel's fortresses on fire, kill Israel's young men with the sword, dash, dash babies into pieces and rip open their pregnant women. Elisha said, that's what Hezael is going to do. And so when you read here in verse three, that Israel is being given over continually into the hand of Hezael, that is bad news. And that is some serious warfare that is going on that God is allowing because of Israel's wickedness. And you might be surprised by what happens next. Although I would say by now, as we've looked at the kings of Israel, maybe we shouldn't be so surprised by what happens next, but maybe we'd be surprised by this. Verse 4 of 2 Kings 13. Then Jehoahaz sought the favor of the Lord, and the Lord listened to him. For he saw the oppression of Israel, how the king of Syria oppressed them. 
It is absolutely amazing to me to continue to see this model put forward is that even in the darkest of times and the greatest amount of wickedness and seeing these kings who are kindling the anger of God to such an extent that here in verse four, we're told that Jehovah has decides he will look for God's favor. And it says that God listened. And not only does it say that God listened, did you notice the imagery? Two, twofold imagery is given here. When it says here in verse 4, because the Lord saw the oppression of Israel and how the king of Syria oppressed them. And therefore the Lord gave Israel a savior so that they escaped from the hand of the Syrians. This is Exodus imagery. Because if you remember, that's when God acted on Israel's behalf as they were being oppressed by Egypt. And God looked down and saw the oppression of Israel and listened to their cry and sent them a savior in Moses who would then deliver them out of that slavery. A similar image is being given to us here that God sees the oppression of his people and is going to act. It is also very similar to the days of the judges when the people cry out to God, even in spite of all their of their wickedness. And a nation is attacking them and causing them all kinds of difficulties. But they turn their eyes to God and God sends a savior, a deliverer, a judge, a military leader who would rescue them and set them free. And so here is the this, this same imagery given to us again and again. And I hope that our one of our messages that we have seen in our studies of Samuel and Kings as we've gone through these narratives and accounts of what God is doing is just to see how often God has compassion for his people. I hope that has hit us in the face over and over and over again. And then I hope followed right behind that as stunning as it is to see God's compassion for his people to see that it continues to never be too late to seek God's favor. People, when they would turn to God and you would expect the text to say, and God said, no way, you're a terrible uh, sinner and I'm not going to listen to you. That, we would expect that to be the next line. But when Ahab turns, God listens, shows compassion, relents. Jehoahaz seeks the favor of the Lord. Verse four says, the Lord listened to him. He sees the oppression of his people. He sends a savior and allows them to escape. This is the very heart of God, that God is constantly showing compassion to his people, desiring to save his people. And I hope that we would never lose sight of the picture of the merciful God that we serve. And I would even underscore it from this text that even if God is obliterating your life because of your sins, like he's doing to Jehoahaz and the nation of Israel, it's not too late. Do not quit on God and seek his favor. Because God in the very line prior says in verse three, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And then the very next line is, but God will show compassion if you'll turn to him. God will save. God will rescue. It is not too late to turn back to God. And so turn to him. Cry out for help. Don't give up on God. Even if you are experiencing the consequences of sin, even if you are going through these kinds of difficulties where you feel like it is the hand of God, 
Turn to God. Don't quit on God, for God will have compassion. And as beautiful as that is, as we've seen throughout the book of the Kings, the next line always seems to follow next. Verse 6. Nevertheless, they did not depart from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin, but walked in them. There is always this nevertheless. And I want us to see why God wants to keep putting that before our eyes. Here is the nation of Israel. They are sinning before God and they are experiencing judgment. The Syrians are coming in and raiding, causing all kinds of havoc and horrible things are happening to them. The king cries out to God, seeks the favor of the Lord. The Lord shows compassion, rescues them, gives them deliverance that they need. Verse 5 says they escaped from the hands of the Syrians and the people of Israel lived in their homes as formerly. God fixes the situation, deals with the Syrians and allows them to be back in their home. And then what happens next? Everybody goes back to forgetting about God again. And that's not what God wants. The reason God helps is to hopefully move us to repentance. That the next line is supposed to be everybody understands that God had accomplished this great work and had because of God giving them the rescue and saving them from their enemies, all the people repented and now worship God. That's what that next verse is supposed to say. But we have seen over and over again the nevertheless Everybody goes back to doing what they were already doing. What it's supposed to mean for us is that God's help is supposed to change our lives. It's supposed to change the way we live. When God rescues us, when God helps us, when God answers prayer, when God gives us what we are looking for, we are not supposed to turn around and go, okay, let me get back to my schedule. Sure glad God got me out of that one. Now let me keep doing my sins that I was doing before. Let me keep living my life the way I was before. That's what Israel's doing right now. As soon as God gives rescue, okay, shoo, let me get back to my sinning. Let me get back to living my life the way that I want to. Let me get back to my Monday through Friday completely ignoring God bit. That's what they're doing. Nevertheless, they just go right back into what they were doing. There's a sad thing to cry out to God, have God's rescue and answer only to turn around and go right back into doing the very sins we were doing before. And this is the kind of rescue that God is trying to show that he's done for us. That's supposed to transform our hearts. Beautiful passage that the Apostle Paul gives. For while we were still helpless... Connect to this scene here. You're helpless against the ultimate enemy of sin and Satan and death. While we're still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person, someone perhaps might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The whole of the picture is that we're helpless. God wants to show his love and compassion to us. He sends a savior into the world, which is supposed to push us to love God and turn our hearts back to him. That the answer then to Christ coming for us would not be verse six. 
Nevertheless, we don't depart from our sins and continue to go doing what we were always doing. And so the picture is an unmoved Israel. God's salvation has not moved Israel. It has not changed hearts. It has not led to repentance. It has not led to transformation. They continue their sinning. And the continuing of that sinning reaches into the next generation from verse 10 to verse 13. The next son, Jehoahash, he gets on the throne. Verse 11, be surprised by this. He also did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not part the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin, but walked in them. Well, yep, okay. Nobody's going to learn from this. Nobody's going to seek God here. God has just saved you and nobody's going to come after him whatsoever. This leads to the, the finale and how this all pushes into this main point of what God is going to do. Because it looks like it is hopeless at this point. And the rest of this text is going to really underscore the hopelessness of Israel. Now, we are, we are met with surprising words in verse 14 when it says, Now, Elisha had fallen sick with an illness of which he was about to die. And you're like, okay. Uh, very surprising that we've come to this point. And what I think is particularly surprising about this point is that we don't have the next person up to continue the work. Remember when Elijah's ministry was about to end, that you have Elisha coming on the scene. He's going to carry the torch forward, continue the ministry in Israel, attempt to rescue the people of Israel, still perform miracles before Israel to turn the hearts of the people back. And now Elisha is about to die. And the next line is not. And then here comes a servant of Elisha. And he's now going to take the mantle and the torch is going to be passed. None of those things. What I want us to see is that when it came to the works of Elijah and Elisha, that was the complete effort. There's no passing the torch. There's no next person up. Elisha is going to be the final miracle worker. Another coming until Jesus arrives. Nobody else is going to come along and carry this torch. Nobody else is going to go through the land doing these signs. Nobody else is going to do the amazing things that we've read about like Elijah and Elisha doing. And I think that's what leads to the concern that happens here because you'll read, you'll read verse 14 and you might be surprised when Jehoahash here, the king of Israel, he finds out that Elisha is sick and he goes to him and weeps before him and says, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And I find that surprising because of the prior paragraph, which said Jehoahash doesn't care. Jehoash continued to walk in the ways of Jeroboam as committing all the sins. He's doing all this great evil. But there is something that Jehoahash is understanding. In fact, the words that Jehoahash says here are the same words that Elisha says to Elijah when Elisha is about to be taken up. And now Jehoahash comes to Elisha, says the same words, my father, my father, the horses, the chariots. And it seems that the, he understands at least this one thing. 
Who is going to care and protect for Israel anymore? That's what Elijah and Elisha have been doing the whole time they've been there is this ministry and this work and this protection that they could go to Elijah and Elisha and do like what has happened here and make the enemies go back and show God's with Israel again. But the torch is not going to be passed. It looks like all hope is lost. And the king understands that, comes to Elisha and says, Essentially, what is going to happen now? The chariots, the horses. How will we survive without you? Notice verse 15. Elisha says to him, take a bow and arrows. And so he took a bow and arrows. And then he said to the king of Israel, draw the bow. And he drew it. And Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands and he said, open the window eastward. And he opened it and Elisha said, shoot. And he shot and he said, the Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria, for you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you have made an end of them. This is an important little picture that happens here. The king is saying, essentially, how will we survive without you? Horses, chariots, my father, we're, we're, we're doomed without you. And so Elisha is now going to do a, a visual for him. And the explanation of this visual is very important where he takes the bow, draws the arrow, shoots it out the window. And notice in verse 11 what Elisha says to help him understand what just took place. He says, the Lord's arrow of victory. You have shot that arrow out the window and that represents God's victory for Israel over Syria in an upcoming battle. Notice in verse 17, you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek, that's a town, until you have made an end of them. So one arrow goes and that represents God is going to give Israel victory against the Syrians in the city. Verse 18. Then Elisha says, take the arrows. The king takes them and said to the king of Israel, strike the ground with them. So the king struck three times and stopped. And the man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you had made an end of it. But now you will only strike down Syria three times. And you read that on the surface, you go... Seems a little rough. He did what you said. But I want you to see the imagery that here is Elisha and he has made an explanation of the arrows. The arrows represent the victory of God for Israel. And so now that you have understood that by shooting a single arrow, I want you to take a bunch of arrows and I want you to strike the ground. Simple command. He strikes the ground three times and Elisha is upset. And you'll notice the reason that he is upset is because the king didn't continue doing it. The imagery is, if you understand what the arrows symbolize, that they represent the victory of God, then you should be smacking those arrows on the ground until your arm falls off. If you want God's victory and you want an image of God giving you that, then three times, you're not going to stop it three times. You're going to keep going and going and going. Give me victory until I can't move my hand anymore. And that's why Elisha's upset. He says, you only did it three times. There's a picture of a half-heartedness here. 
I believe what Elisha was looking for was something similar to what Peter does with Jesus. You might remember this interesting scene that happens in John 13, where Jesus is preparing to wash the feet of his disciples. And as Jesus is about to come to Peter, Peter says, no way. You're not washing my feet. I mean, yes, exactly. Brilliant understanding. I'm the servant. You're the master. You're not washing my feet. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you have no fellowship with me. You remember what Peter's answer to that was? Man, you better wash me from head to toe then. (laughs) If that's what that symbolizes, then don't just wash my feet, wash my head, wash my hands. Jesus goes, not needing that. But what Peter's grabbing onto is the symbol. If that represents fellowship, dump the bucket on me. I want to be in fellowship with you. That's what the king should have done. If the arrows represent the Lord's victory, then slam those things down again and again and again. But there's a half-heartedness here of this king. He does it three times. And he's done. It is a half-hearted concern and it is a half-hearted faith. One commentator, Donald Weisman, I thought just made the point so well when he just simply said, the extent of victory is limited by man's failure to persevere. And I thought, that's brilliant. Because that is so true. It's what God is trying to show us all the time is I'm trying to help you. I'm trying to rescue you. I'm trying to bless you. And the only reason it's not happening is because you won't stay faithful to me. You won't endure. You won't continue on. And so it it stops where it could have just kept going. You'd imagine what Elisha could have said if the king would have just kept on just bouncing those arrows. It would have been the end of Syria. But instead, the imagery is... You'll strike them down only three times, and then Syria is still going to be a problem. Now, that sounds hopeless. Elisha's about to die. In fact, the very next line in verse 20 is Elisha dies. And so Israel's only going to have victory three times, and that's it. And there's no miracle worker to come after him. There's not another uh, one to carry the ministry. The torch is not going to be carried on. This is the end. But something absolutely strange happens in verse 20. And so Elisha died and they buried him. Now bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. And as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen. And the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. I would have liked to have seen that. What an image is given here. You just imagine the scene. Elisha dies, he's buried, and some unknown random Israelite dies about the same time. And you can imagine his family, his friends are preparing his body so that they can also put him in the ground. And at the very time, here comes this attack of Moabites and they don't have any time to do anything else except throw it in the next grave right by there. That just so happens to be Elisha's bones. They put his body in there and no sooner does that body hit the bones of Elisha, that man's back up and alive. 
Wow. And I want you to notice, you'd like the rest of that to continue about what happened next. That's all. <laughs> That's it. That's, you got it. It's done. I want us to see that there is something huge that God is saying in this final miracle, final miracle of Elisha. that's accomplished through him, though he be dead. And it's this very important point. The power of resurrection, the hope of life still remained for Israel. Even though Elisha's dead, hope still remained. Even though Elisha's dead, to see that death can still be reversed and life can come out of that. There is still hope for a dead nation, victory over death, restoration of life still remained. And I want you to see that that is actually brought out in the rest of the story. You might think is disconnected, but we're told in verse 23, the Lord is gracious to Israel all the days of Jehoahaz and had compassion on them and he turned toward them. Why? Because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he would not destroy them, nor has he cast them from his presence until now. Even though Elisha's dead and Jehoahaz still lives, God is saying, there's still hope. There's covenantal hope. I'm turning my face to Israel. There is hope for the nation yet. There is resurrection power that is still available for his people. Now, this is not the only time something strange like this happens in Scripture. It's a subtle line that when we study the death of Jesus, that's very easy to miss, especially because it is only found in one of the gospel accounts that tells us this really strange thing. The death of Jesus in Matthew 27 and verse 50, we're told, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split and the tombs were opened. Now carefully read this next sentence. And many of the bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. All right, if I thought I wanted to see the guy who touched Elisha's bones come up, think about this one. So when Jesus dies, the tombs are opened. When Jesus raises from the dead three days later, those tombs that were open, that were the people of God, those bodies came out. And not only did the bodies come out, it says they go walking into Jerusalem. And not only do they go walking into Jerusalem, they're appearing to people. Hey, everybody. I mean, Jaws had to be on the ground. We just buried that guy last week. We buried that guy last year. How is my friend alive? How is my family member alive? Why does that happen? What is the scene that's being given here? Why present it like that? Why tell us that when Jesus raises from the dead, even other people were raised from the dead? Why tell us that when some random Israelite body is thrown and hits Elisha's body, it comes back to life? Think about what the New Testament's always trying to tell us. Like Romans chapter 8, verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, 
He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. It's the picture. When Jesus raises from the dead, holy people of God at the same time, raised from the dead, walking in Jerusalem, say hi to people and talk to them. When an Israelite body touches the body of Elisha, he comes back to life. And the Apostle Paul comes along and says, if you have the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, then whoever who raised Jesus from the dead is also going to raise your mortal body as well. Or in 1 Corinthians 6, 14, God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Or 2 Corinthians 4.13, since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. What is God trying to tell you over and over and over again? (laughs) is this resurrection power is available still. This power, this hope, this future, this restoration of life, this taking the dead and and bringing it back to life again, that is all still available. And the message that we are getting this picture of is if anyone will turn and seek the favor of the Lord and not in a half-hearted, half-faith kind of way, Resurrection life is available. That's how this chapter is unfolding. It's a beautiful scene of what chapter 13 is all about. Here they are. Seek the Lord's favor. It's not too late. Don't have half-hearted faith like you see this king having. Because look at the life that is still available. Or to maybe put it more directly to what we've seen in the text. Whoever comes in contact with the man of God is going to experience resurrection and restoration of life. That's what just happened. This dead body comes in contact with the man of God and that body comes back to life. That's the hope that's given to us. The resurrection power, life after death. There is hope for us yet. And the greatest image that's given to us is that God is able to restore our sinful souls to put us in right relationship with him so that he can raise these mortal bodies from the dead, be changed into immortal, glorious bodies so that we can be with him for eternity. That is the hope that's being given. And I want you to see that's a hope in the Old Testament. Here's resurrection. Here's resurrection hope in the days of the kings is that God can bring back to life. Now, let me end with this. The arrows of God's victory are in your hands. What will you do? The arrows of God's victory are in your hands. You can strike the ground once or twice 
and enjoy a little bit of God's blessings and a little bit of God's favor and a little bit of God's compassion, a little bit of God's love. Or you can take the arrows and you can strike and strike and strike and strike and strike and devote your life to striking the arrows of God's victory on the ground and know that you have resurrection life, that you have life from the dead and that you have hope of eternity. As that writer said, is that the benefits and joys and delights of what we have in the presence and relationship of God is only hindered by our endurance to remain with God. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, what an ending to the life of your servant, Elisha, and what a powerful picture you show of how you can restore people to life. And it is a powerful double meaning, Lord, that you can take our sinful lives and that you can cleanse them, you can heal us, you can make us clean and put us back into relationship with you. What power you have to give life to us. And not only that, that you have shown power over our physical bodies, that we are able to have with all hope and with all certainty the knowledge that one day we'll be resurrected to be with you. Lord, help us to have the strength and the faith to come into contact with your son and to hold on to the blessings and the promises that you have made and given to us. Lord, I pray that we would always be mindful of the arrows of victory that you have put into our hands. That we have great hope before us. That we can call upon you and look to the great benefits that lie ahead. Lord, forgive us for the times where we have been half-hearted, where we have not taken the power and the blessings that you have given to us. We don't take the power of prayer. We don't take the power of the promises that you've given to us and do not use them to grow our faith and to seek you with all of our heart forgive us when we've taken your arrows and hit the ground once or twice and god i pray that you would give us a mentality like peter that all that we want is fellowship with your son and we will do whatever it takes to enjoy that fellowship in jesus name amen We're going to sing an invitation song. We invite you to consider the arrows that are in your hand today. Will you serve him with all of your heart? Will you call upon your Lord and enjoy the hope of eternity that lies ahead, the resurrection power, death turned to life? It all stands before us this very evening. Can we help you in any way? Won't you come while we stand, while we sing?